How great is our God? Would you please reach for your Bibles for our scripture reading this morning? Today, we'll be continuing in the series Pastor Bruce is teaching in. Abraham, God of promises and a life of faith. Today's passage will be Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 29. Last week, we saw um, a God who does what is right. Now we're going to see what a God does after that. <laughs> if you are in need of a pew Bible, there's one in front of you. We'll begin this passage on chap on page 16. So follow along with me as I read Genesis 19, 1 through 29. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered into his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under my, the shelter of my roof. And they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge? No, now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot, and drew near to the break the door down. But the men reached out their hand and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you any, anyone else here, sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city to bring them out of this place? For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. The Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away into the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. And the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to. And it is a little one. Let me escape there. It is not a little. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to them, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. 
Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zor, and the Lord reigned on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to a place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. He looked up, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley. God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrown when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being a righteous and just God. I pray that today you would have our eyes and ears open to what Pastor Bruce is willing to speak to us today. pray that you would give him the words to speak and that we maybe see your righteousness and justice today, God, in your name. Amen. Well, like each and every Sunday, I invite you to keep your Bibles open, especially to this chapter, this particular story that focuses on the destruction, the disaster that fell upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Like most of you, I enjoy watching a good movie. And one of the genres of movies that was very, very popular in the 90s were the quote, disaster movies. In fact, it seemed like every summer a, a new disaster movie was coming out. The disaster might be this violent tornado sweeping across the Midwest in the movie Twister, which came out in 1996, or the disaster might be a volcano erupting suddenly close to a small town in the movie Dante's Peak, 1997. The disaster might even be a, a giant asteroid heading toward Earth and wiping out a third of the population in the movie Armageddon, came out in 1998. Or a comet, basically with the same plot line in the movie Deep Impact, came out in the same year, 1998. The disaster might even be dinosaurs being cloned by scientists in the movie Jurassic Park, 1993. And the disaster might be aliens invading Earth and threatening to destroy humanity in the movie actually enjoyed this one, Independence Day, in 1996. Now, like most of you, I've seen every one of those movies, and every one of these movies has a very predictable plot. Disaster is coming. There's the foreshadowing of disaster where something bad is going to happen, and people are going to die, and now you're just waiting in anticipation for the inevitable to happen and wondering who's going to survive. The tornado is going to touch down. The volcano, it's going to erupt. The asteroid, it's, it's going to hit Earth. The dinosaurs are going to get loose. Aliens are going to attack, and people are going to die, and some just might escape. And we're left with the question in the movie, who? Who's it going to be that escapes disaster? Now, that's every disaster that's ever been made. And here in the book of Genesis, we have somewhat the same foreshadowing 
that disaster is coming and people are going to die while a few will escape. Sodom and Gomorrah, they have been doomed ever since we were introduced to them back in Genesis chapter 13, where we learn in verse 10, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And immediately after that, we learn the reason why their destruction. In fact, it's given in verse 13, now the men of Sodom were wicked, and they're sinning greatly against the Lord. And from that moment on, from that point on in chapter 13, just like in a disaster movie, the only question before us as we have made our journey through these chapters is when will disaster come? In Genesis 19, disaster finally comes when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire and brimstone and all its inhabitants died except for Lot and his two daughters who escaped the destruction. In fact, what's interesting here, as Jeremy read through the chapter, maybe you noticed it, that disaster, that word is used in verse 19 to actually describe what happens to these cities. The word destroy is used twice in verse 13. It's used again in verse 14 and once more in verse 29. Destroy to describe God's judgment on these two cities. But unlike the disaster movies that we all, most of us watched in the 90s, listen to me, the disaster that came upon Sodom and Gomorrah was real. It was a historical event that is recorded here in Scripture for our benefit. And so what we read here in Genesis 19, it really did happen in history. And yet, the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah is more than merely an event in history. This event, what we're seeing here, what we read here in Genesis 19, it points us to the reality of God's judgment that is coming on this world. The Bible tells us that a day of destruction is coming for the whole world. And so against that backdrop of God's righteous judgment, here's the question we should be asking ourselves this morning. What hope do we have that God will save us? What hope do you have that God will save you from final judgment? Listen, what happened here to Sodom and Gomorrah is actually a pattern that tells us something of the judgment that will come on the day of the Lord when Jesus returns. In fact, Jesus states this twice that the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness will be more bearable. It will be more tolerable than the judgment he will bring on the whole world at his return. Peter goes on and tells us in 2 Peter 2.6 that God reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is coming to the ungodly. Therefore, the question here in Genesis 19, it is not ultimately about what happened to those cities. 
but about what will happen to us. What will happen to you? In other words, what hope do you have that God will save you from his judgment still to come? And I want you to see here clearly that Genesis 19 provides us the answer to that question. Listen, what we learn here in this chapter is that when God destroys the wicked, he remains faithful to the righteous. Amen. We should be oh so comforted by that and confident of that. Let me say it again. When God destroys the wicked, he remains faithful to the righteous. And so what we see here is both the judgment of God as well as the mercy of God when he acts as the judge of all the world. At the end of chapter 19, Abraham returned to his tent after interceding with God not to destroy the righteous along with the wicked and God assuring him that he would not destroy Sodom if he could do what? If he could just find ten righteous people. Abraham learned in his intercession with the judge of all the earth, he learned a fundamental truth about God. The judge of all the earth will only and always do what is right. And now here in Genesis 19, Abraham will discover that when God destroys the wicked, he remains faithful to the righteous. Come sunrise, he will now understand God's judgment along with God's mercy in a whole new way. And we are meant to see and to learn the same thing about our God. So let's unpack it. Let's look at it. What do we see when the judge of all the earth acts now? Here's what we see, number one. We see horrible depravity when God visits Sodom. In the first 11 verses of this chapter, the judge of all the earth, just as he said he would in Genesis 19 or 18, he now visits Sodom to confirm what he already knows. That they are indeed deserving of judgment. Why? Because of their horrible depravity, their horrible wickedness. And so just as God promised in Genesis 18.21, he visits Sodom to investigate now the outcry of sin that he heard against it. And what we see in these verses actually now justifies God's judgment against Sodom and Gomorrah. So notice it. Two observations about this. First of all, one about Lot and one about the men of the city. The first observation here about Lot is Lot, he pressed strongly on the two angels to accept the protection of his hospitality. And so in a very similar manner that the three men approached Abraham in chapter 18 at his tent, the two angels now approach Lot at the gate of Sodom. We see this in verses 1 through 3, where the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, My Lord, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet, and then you may rise up early and go on your way. And they said, No, no, we will spend the night in the town square. And then notice it. What does he do? His response is he, he pressed them strongly. 
So they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. And right away, we should recognize that this scene here takes place when? In the evening. While the encounter with Abraham back in chapter 18 took place in midday, in the heat of the day. And so we are meant to take note of the stark contrast here of chapter 18 and now this chapter of light and dark. Unlike the dinner of Abraham's tent, this scene, let me tell you, it will soon be filled with wickedness. In fact, you can almost sense the eeriness of Lot alone meets these two angels in the public gate of the city, and it kind of makes you ask the question, well, where are the other men of the city? Well, sadly, the other men will arrive all too soon, but with very evil intentions. Now, despite the fact that there are no other men to greet the two angels, Lot goes out of his way to greet them and to show them hospitality. But the two angels are intent on spending the night in the town square of the city. And what does Lot do? He pressed them strongly to stay the night in his house. Now, why? Why would Lot do that? Why would he press them strongly? No, you have to stay the night in my house. You cannot stay the night in the town square. Because Lot knew. He knows something about the city of Sodom. He knows how evil and how wicked the men of the city were. He knew that what would happen if these two angels remained in the town square at night. As one pastor and author puts it, something is rotten in the city of Sodom. And Lot's nervous insistence betrays that he has a good idea of what may happen later that night. And so we are told he pressed strongly, and that term actually has the idea that he manhandled the two angels to stay in his house. In other words, Lot did some major arm twisting here till they said yes for the sake of their own protection against the wickedness of the men of the city. And when Lot got them safe inside his house, what does he do? He made a feast for them of unleavened bread. But now we learn something about the men of the city. And the observation we learn here is that the men of Sodom pressed hard on Lot to know the two angels sexually. News of the two visitors spread quickly around the city, drawing all the men of Sodom to gather around Lot's house with the intention to gratify the evil desires of their sexual perversion. Look what it says again, verses 4 through 5. But before they lay down, that is, the they there is reference to Lot and the two angels who are now in his house. So before they lay down for the evening, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. And notice something here. Notice that this group of men includes who? It includes all the men of the city. For we read that the men of all ages, in other words, both young and old, 
And every single man, it says all the people to the last man did what? They surrounded Lot's house. You say, why is that significant that the writer Moses here is telling us that little detail? That detail is important. It's significant for this reason. Remember, God said if he could find just 10 righteous people in the city, he would not do what? He would not destroy it for their sake. And now God is showing us beyond any reasonable doubt here that there were not 10 righteous people to be found in the city of Sodom. They were guilty of both social immorality and sexual immorality and therefore deserving of judgment. And so when all the men of the city arrived, they called to Lot, proposing their wicked plan. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, what exactly are these men asking for? And why does the Bible condemn their request? Well, without question, these men are asking for sexual relations with the two angels who have come to visit the city of Sodom. And it seems that any number of Sodom's men were bisexual and had wives, like the men pledged to marry Lot's daughters. Otherwise, Sodom would have had hardly any population at all. But on this particular night, all the men of Sodom were seeking homosexual relations with the two angels who, who they thought at the time were just two ordinary men who they could use to gratify their evil desires of their sexual perversion. Now, there are some, both in the past and even especially today, that, that want to reduce this sin solely to, quote, gang rape. And the reason for wanting to do that is to justify homosexual relationships that are, that are so culturally acceptable today. They would say what we see here, it, well, it's not like anything like a consensual monogamous homosexual relationship. This, this here, chapter 9, this is massive gang rape, and obviously that would be wrong. That would be unacceptable even in our culture today. But as one commentator writes, the request by the men of the city is almost certainly not for sexual assault, but for an orgy. And this is clear, by the way, the men use the word no to describe their sexual desires. In fact, this Hebrew word no is used to describe sexual relations, but never describes a sexual assault or abuse, which uses words like seized or forced or violated. So all the men... If you can picture this in your mind now, the scene here, surrounded Lot's home so they can know sexually these two angels. And of course, we also need to acknowledge that most homosexuality in even our culture today is not like this scene in Sodom. In fact, some of us, many of you, probably have a family member or you at least have friends Many of you know co-workers, you know a neighbor who are, you would consider, hey, they're decent. They're decent people. They're decent men and women, and they're not like these men of Sodom. 
And so we understand that there's some distinction here, and yet there is no escaping the conclusion, however uncomfortable it may be, even in our culture today, that the destruction here of Sodom and Gomorrah is a condemnation on sexual immorality in general and homosexuality in particular. As one commentator writes, there is simply no way to sidestep the clear condemnation of homosexual behavior in this passage. You go to the New Testament, and there in the little book of Jude, Jude says this in verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. That unnatural desire is what we're looking at here. And it serves as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And at the same time, I want everyone here to know, I want you to leave here knowing that our God is not a killjoy when it comes to sex. Please know that. Listen, our God, he, he affirms and he encourages Sexual intimacy as a wonderful gift within his beautiful design of marriage. God, does, he does not try to keep us from enjoying sex, but only to warn us about what sex can be misused in astonishingly destructive ways in our lives. Listen, any sexual activity that takes place outside of a covenant marriage union of one man and one woman is contrary to God's design and it harms us in deeper ways than any other sin. Therefore, listen to me, it it is not loving, neither is it kind to encourage people to pursue sexual intimacy in ways that clash with God's design and God's will for our lives. And yet also, also know, please leave here knowing this, that God's grace is abundant. Oh, it is so abundant. Listen, gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ promises both forgiveness of our sins. It promises freedom from sins including sexual sins of all kinds, whether it's heterosexual, bisexual, homosexual, whatever. In contrast to the men of Sodom, stands Lot. And he stands at the door of his house. And his initial response to the request, let me tell you, it is rather noble if not brave on his part, in verses 6 through 7. Look at it. It says, Lot went out to the men at the entrance. And this isn't one man, two men, three men. This is all the men of the city. And shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. So this initial response by Lot is noble. It's even brave. Lot clearly understands the intentions of the men of Sodom here. And now he's trying to protect his guests from their sexual perversion. But any hint of nobility is quickly eclipsed by his cowardly proposal in verse 8. Behold, 
I have two daughters who have not known any man, so they're virgins. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. And it makes you wonder, how could he do that? How could he make such a proposal? How could a father do something so horrible and terrible to his daughters? I would simply suggest to you that Lot has now embraced the ethics of his culture. By now placing the sanctity of hospitality above the sanctity of his family. But as one commentator writes, even if Lot thought that his daughters would suffer no harm because they were betrothed as virgins to their fellow sodomites, the offer here was a monstrous breach of fatherly duty. Now, fortunately, Lot's cowardly foolishness was overridden by the Sodomites' oh-so-scornful response to him. Notice verse 9. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn. They're now speaking about Lot now. Lot, you came to sojourn, and he has become the judge Now we will deal worse with you than with them. And then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. And so Lot's, get this, his his assertion of morality. He interjects morality in the situation, and they are highly offended by that. In other words, if you don't give hearty approval We will do worse to you. They, in their minds, how dare you, Lot? How dare you play judge over us? Who who do you think you are? You are an alien. You are a sojourner here. You are not one of us, even maybe you think you are, even if you're sitting at the seat of the gate of the city and making judgments, your influence, you do not belong. How dare you interject your morality into this situation and play judge in our life? Little has changed today. You do realize that. Even today, people are highly offended. If you don't give hearty approval to their ideology and to their ethics, especially the sexual ethics of our culture today, in their eyes, absence of approval is unforgivably judgmental by you. Now, before the men of Sodom can harm Lot, the angels intervene in verses 10 through 11. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door, and they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. So, Now the men of Sodom, they cannot see physically. More importantly, they cannot see spiritually where they are going. And so now, if there had been any doubt that there were not ten righteous people in the city, that doubt is now gone. It is crystal clear here. There are none except for Lot and his family. God's investigation is now complete. 
The evidence of Sodom's wickedness is now undeniable and deserving of judgment. And that's when we also see, oh, this is beautiful. Please don't miss this in the story here. We also see now God's mercy in action. We see the merciful deliverance in how God rescues Lot. At this point, Lot realizes who these two men are. They have been sent by God to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But first, they must rescue Lot from God's judgment. And notice the sequence of events, the sequence of God's merciful deliverance of Lot and his family. First of all, the angels warned Lot of the judgment that is coming to get out of the city of Sodom. Notice the angels' warning in verses 12 through 13. Then the men, that is the angels, said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place. Why? For we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against his people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And so what mercy, what love we see in this warning. Let me, let me just remind us, warning people is a loving action. It's a loving thing to do, to warn your children, to warn your friends of danger, to warn of God's judgment. That is a merciful, loving action that we do. It's what God does here. And notice this, the, the, the warning and the mercy, it is huge. The angels say not only may family escape God's judgment, but anyone Lot has in the city can escape. The only requirement is that they must come with Lot out of the city. And this is just amazing. The mercy of God extends here to anyone that Lot has witnessed to and has shed warning to and shared God's mercy about But the consequences are real. To stay in the city will mean what? It will mean death. But to flee the city will mean life. And so see something here. The angels are ministers of God's wrath, but also God's mercy. And so Lot does what he's told here in verse 14. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, 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 get out of this place. For the Lord is about to destroy the city, but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. In other words, they, they rejected Lot's warning because they thought he was joking about God's judgment. Then the angels, notice, second of all, the angels dragged Lot and his family by the hand out of the evil city. Lot had just heard the angel's warning to get out of the city and even warned his own family, but Lot doesn't seem to sense the urgency of the matter here. And so the angels deliver now a second warning in verse 15. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. In other words, time has expired. God's judgment is about to be unleashed on the city. And only, only Lot 
his wife and his two daughters are, quote, here to be rescued. But notice Lot's response in verse 16. What does it say? But he lingered. But he lingered. I would suggest to you what a sad description of Lot's life. He's somewhat like Frodo in his inability to cast the ring of power into the fires of Mount Doom in the Lord of the Rings. Lot here, he cannot bring himself to abandon wholeheartedly the city of Sodom even to save his own life. Such is the trap of sin. Sin has a way of entangling us, has a way of gripping us even when we know it will destroy us in the end. But again, this is amazing. We see God's mercy in action here in the rest of verse 16. Look at it with me. So the men, that is the two angels, notice what they do. They actually seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. God is so merciful. Please leave here knowing we have a merciful God. He is so merciful to Lot here in this moment, even when Lot is hesitant to obey God's way of escape. At this point, the angels repeat their warning, and now they intensify their instructions in verse 17, where the angels commanded Lot and his family, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And so in light of God's third and final warning here, nothing is more astonishing than Lot's self-centered pleading with God. As the sun rose on the city and then God's astonishing concession to Lot, which brings us to the fourth observation here. Notice that the angels granted Lot's pleading to flee to the little city of Zoar instead of escaping to the hills. Notice what Lot says, his pleading, his request in verses 18 through 20. And Lot said to them, the two angels, Oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, th this city is near enough to flee to. And it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. Listen, what Lot pleads here is astonishingly sad on so many levels. First of all, did you notice? He, he actually acknowledged that he had found favor or grace in God's eyes and that God had kindly spared his life. He acknowledges that, but then immediately he goes on to doubt God's ability to preserve his life as he flees to the mountains. I cannot escape to the hills lest disaster overtake me and I die. And I just want to scream to him, Lot, are you serious here? Are you kidding me? How, how little his faith is in the Lord at this moment. 
And unbelievably, Lot now has the nerve to ask God to send him to this little city named Zoar, which was simply nothing more than a mini Sodom. As one commentator says, not even fire and brimstone will make a pilgrim of Lot. He must have his little Sodom again if life is to be supportable. And I don't know about you, but it makes you wonder why God rescued Lot at all. Why not just strike this compromising little weasel dead with the rest of Sodom? Do do you not wonder that? And I'll tell you, here's why. Because God's mercy, let me tell you, it is more astonishing than Lot's faithlessness. Proving once again that God's grace and not our human righteousness is the ultimate basis of our salvation, of our deliverance from God's judgment on sin. Oh, I'm so grateful for what God did here. Because that's what God will do for you and I. And so God graciously said to Lot here in verses 21 and 22, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. And so what a a gracious reminder here that God is no less merciful to us in our salvation. Listen, we, every one of us, we are in no way morally better than Lot. I hope you do not see yourself better than Lot. Listen, each of us is is only saved from the judgment of our sin by the sheer mercy of God in Jesus Christ. So we have now seen the horrible depravity of Sodom. We have seen the merciful deliverance of Lot. And now we see, yes, the total destruction of Sodom. Number three, when God judges Sodom. Once Lot arrives in Zoar, the angels now unleash the fury of God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. We read this in verses 23 through 25, look what it says. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. And then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And so God's judgment here on this day, it was swift. It was sudden. Fire and sulfur poured down from heaven and It destroyed everyone and everything in the cities in the surrounding valley. But I want you to see something in particular here in these verses. I want you to notice the repetition of God's name. And even specifically the phrase, out of heaven, here in verse 24. Because it it references, it, it reinforces the fact that the disaster that struck Sodom and Gomorrah, listen, it was not a freak of nature. Rather, it was unleashed by God himself from his heavenly position as the judge of all the earth. And so what we see here, without any doubt, without any question, is God's destruction on Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen to me, it was just, 
And God's deliverance of Lot was merciful. And what's interesting about all this, you fast forward to the New Testament when Jesus comes here to the earth in his ministry. He uses, looking back, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as an example of God's final judgment on this world. In fact, first of all, Jesus recalls the account of Noah in the great flood where everyone was living life as normal until the flood came. And then Jesus cites the the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And let me just read to you what it says, what he says in Luke chapter 17, verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day... When Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. And so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In other words, when he returns. Jesus reveals here that his second coming, it will be just as swift. It will be just as sudden, just as devastating as the great flood and the destruction of Sodom. And yet, and yet, as with both of these catastrophic events, these destructive events, those who belong to the Lord will be rescued. Now, what happened next is very, very telling. In the aftermath of God's judgment on Sodom, there are two people who looked. Lot's wife looked, but also Abraham looked. And I want you to see the difference in their looks, the difference in why they looked. First of all, Lot's wife looked back at Sodom's destruction with worldly regret, and she became a pillar of salt. So just imagine, despite all the warnings, and how many warnings did God give? Three. Three warnings God gave. That's pretty merciful. That is pretty loving and gracious by God to give three warnings, and despite all those warnings, and even despite the special treatment of the angels, what did they do? They actually grabbed Lot's wife by the hand and physically dragged her out of the city. And despite all of that, we read here in verse 26, but Lot's wife behind him, that is behind Lot, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. Now, while Lot lingered in the city and eventually fled to Zoar, Lot's wife lingered outside of the city, and she looked back with worldly regret, and she suffered the consequences. Alan Ross, one commentator, suggests that by transforming Lot's wife here into a pillar of salt. The Lord made her into a, quote, monument of disobedience. Why did Lot's wife fatally look back? Well, Jesus actually gives us insight in his warning of what not to do at his second coming. In Luke 17, 31 32, Jesus says, On that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back 
And then Jesus warns us, remember Lot's wife. Do you realize this is the only time God or Jesus tells us to remember a female and it happens to be Lot's wife? Of all the women in the Bible, remember her? Yeah. It's a warning. And Jesus is suggesting here that her looking back is far more than this momentary look over her shoulder. But rather, it is a lingering outside of the city. It is a longing to return to what must be left behind. And so in looking back towards Sodom, she reveals what is inside her heart. She reveals that her heart is still in Sodom. It is not in the salvation that God has provided her. But what you really want to know is how did Lot's wife become a pillar of salt? I hear your questions. I mean, did she become the sodium chloride monument with her her eyes and her face frozen in saline horror that generations of Israelites could now look upon? It is interesting. Interesting, the Roman Jewish historian Josephus, he actually claimed to have seen the pillar in his day, first century. The reality was probably more like this. As she lingered and looked back, she succumbed to the sulfurous gases, and and then her corpse lay exposed. It was encrusted in salt and debris so that she became a pillar of salt. And whatever the details might be, her example is meant to instruct us. Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. Remember that an angel dragged her away from certain destruction and charged her, commanded her to flee, but she what? She looked back with worldly regret. And so no wonder Jesus warns us, remember Lot's wife. In the very next verse, after that, he says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. Secondly, though, Abraham looked. And Abraham looked down on Sodom's destruction with godly grief and wondered if his prayer had any effect. Now, there is a somber silence at this point. As we come to this scene here with Abraham, and we read in verses 27 and 28, and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And in that place, what did he do there? That's the place where Abraham interceded with God. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So like Lot's wife, Abraham looks on Sodom's destruction too. However, unlike Lot's wife, Abraham's look, it is not motivated by any desire to return to the city, but rather with godly grief over the city. The sunrise that morning had brought judgment and salvation. But Abraham did not know this yet. He didn't know that God had rescued Lot from judgment. And so surely Abraham is is a little worried here. He is surely concerned about his nephew. And he's wondering in his heart, in his grief, whether his prayers in the prior chapter, had any effect at all when he interceded with God. And yet this entire passage teaches us, it shows us that God has answered indeed Abraham's prayers. 
Listen, his intercession was not in vain. God did rescue Lot, proving that when God judges the wicked, he remains faithful to the righteous. And so let us return here to the big question, the overarching question about God's justice and God's mercy here. And what we learn is that God answered Abraham's question that he asked in chapter 18, and God answered it visibly and concisely and conclusively. What we see here is the overarching question that Abraham asked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the answer is proven here in Genesis 19. Yes. God remembers the righteous when he judges the wicked. And we should shout hallelujah for that. We should be oh so grateful for that because there is is so much hope in that. And look at the hope in verse 29 when it says, So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. He sent Lot out in the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Oh, let us praise our Lord. Let us come to him humbly and with thanksgiving. Yes, for his judgment, but also for his mercy. Listen, God rescued Lot. Why? Because he remembered Abraham. This is covenant language by God. The judge of all the earth has done what is right, what is just, even as he extends mercy to Lot by remembering Abraham in the midst of his judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And this too, folks, this too is our hope. This is your hope. It is your only hope. I hope you see that. When Jesus returns to judge the world, God will rescue the righteous. Why? Because God will remember Our righteousness in Jesus Christ. Listen, we are not saved. Nobody is saved here on the basis of our own righteousness. It is only and solely on the basis of Christ's perfect righteousness. And so let me encourage you. Let me plead with you to run to Jesus Christ in saving faith. To escape the judgment of your sin. To accept God's forgiveness of sin. To accept God's mercy and grace to accept God's righteousness that is only found in Jesus Christ. Do not walk out of here and and linger and look back on this world with worldly regret. Oh, Oh, that we would set our hearts on the kingdom of God with wholehearted devotion. And this morning, Jesus stands Oh, so ready to, to reach out and take you and grab you by the hand to lead you out of the city of man that will face destruction and lead you to the heavenly city of God where neither rust nor moth can destroy but will remain for eternity. And so I hope even now you are asking yourself, will I experience the judgment of God? on my life when Jesus comes, or do I know the mercy of God that is found in his son, Jesus Christ, through saving faith? 
That is your only hope. Why would you run from that hope and run to this world that is going to be destroyed? Oh, think seriously of your life in relation to God's coming judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word regarding your judgment and, yes, even your mercy. Oh, your mercy, Lord. And may what we've heard grip our hearts. May it cause us to embrace salvation that you have provided in Jesus Christ. And so help us to set our hearts on your eternal kingdom and to live in the power of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.